So this is the third series, the third message in a, in a series of four messages on busyness. Now, at the heart of this whole series is this. The real problem with busyness and hurry and being harried, the real problem is not a disordered schedule, it's a disordered heart. That the real issue beneath our busyness and hurry is a spiritual illness. That that this manner of life is really a barrier to intimacy with God and intimacy with others and and, and becoming who God has made us to be. This idea that you cannot speed walk with God. You You can't grow deeper in Christ if you're always... Looking at your watch. One of the things I've been saying all three weeks is that busyness and hurry, these are not symptoms of being committed people, of being responsible people. They're symptoms of our betrayal, our betrayal to Christ and his kingdom. Now, the irony of all of that is this. Busyness is so prevalent in our culture That even those of us who swear allegiance to Christ and his kingdom have been lulled into believing it's normal or it's neutral or it's not that big of a deal. It's something we want to change, but we haven't really grasped the depth of the problem. But the fact of the matter is this busy, hurried, harried way of life is doomed To destruction. Because God is building his kingdom. And it is God's kingdom. And God's manner of living. That will not cease. That will endure forever. So our need is to learn to live now. How we will live then. Our need is to develop the dispositions of a heart now. That will enable us to enjoy the reign and rule of Christ that will have no end. Now, what I've been... If you think about the whole structure of this series of messages, I've not only been naming the problem of busyness, mostly the first week, but trying to remind us every week, but the whole way I've looked into Scripture in order to come against this way of living is not by saying to us, we need to have a balanced life. But last week and this week and next week, I've been saying we need to have a life that is in rhythm. The real way of fighting over busyness is not by working so hard to bring balance to our life. Now, that's one way of approaching it. That's what time management techniques would teach. But what I've been saying is that there's a deeper wisdom in Scripture. And this deeper wisdom in Scripture is to look to the rhythm God has carved into the grain of the universe when it comes to a day and when it comes to a week and when it comes to a year. And that if we can learn to walk in time, if we can learn to walk in the rhythm of time that God has put into this universe, it will shape the dispositions of our hearts and we'll become the kind of people who can know how to say yes and no. We'll become the kind of people who know when something is offered us 
that it is something we should say no to. We'll learn to value calmness of spirit. We'll become the kind of people who are present and alert to what God is saying to us. Now, last week, we looked at the rhythm of a day. And there's some pretty revolutionary things in Scripture about a day, that a day begins at night, not in the morning. And that very fact changes things, that a day has boundaries of nighttime, darkness, and daylight. And when we look in Genesis 1 and we embrace the boundaries and the rhythm of a day, it leads to some very practical issues. I pointed these out last week. One of the main things is called fixed hour prayer. And some of you have already had conversations with me about how learning to practice that is bringing a change to your spirit and your disposition. Now, today we're looking at the rhythm of a week. It's interesting. A day is based on the sun, right? So a day, we learn to have days based on nature. And a month is pretty much based on a moon. But did you know that of all the units of time, The week doesn't come from nature, it comes from culture. The week isn't tied to the solar system in any way. In fact, it's incongruous. We don't have any months that kind of work cleanly with weeks, basically, and years don't work cleanly with weeks. God revealed days and months and years to us through nature, but he revealed the week to us through Scripture. In fact, different cultures have different numbers of days in their weeks. There are cultures with five-day weeks and culture with eight days and ten-day weeks. The seven-day week is a profound claim of the Jewish and Christian heritage that is making a statement about reality. And it comes from Scripture, not from nature. And our ignoring of the seven-day week is a profoundly theological move that we should be very careful of doing. Let me show you what I'm talking about. Look in Genesis chapter 2, verse 1. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day. And made it holy because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Now in Genesis chapter 1 we see there's this rhythm to the day. Evening and morning. Evening and morning. It goes all the way down through Genesis 1. And then in Genesis 2 we see this other rhythm come up. Six days of work and one day of rest. So when you look at Genesis 1 and 2, this is, what you, this is the cadence of time. Evening and morning. Work and rest. Work and rest. Work and rest. Six days. And then a seventh day, the whole rhythm changes. There's still 24 hours in a day. The quantity's the same, but the quality changes. The nature of it changes. All of a sudden, you miss work. If you were playing a song, it'd be like all of a sudden there was a beat missing. Instead... Just rest. Now, that's the rhythm. On the beat, God creates. On the offbeat, God pauses. On the offbeat of the evenings, he pauses. On the offbeat of the seventh day, he pauses and he looks at what he's made and he sees that it's good. If you want to live with calmness of spirit, if you want to be who God made you to be, 
then you've got to learn to walk in this rhythm. Don't strive against it. Don't try to invent a different one. Follow God in the original rhythm that he strummed on the waters of creation. As God worked, so do we. As God rested, so do we. When we live in this rhythm, we are actually imaging God. We're acting like God. We're being in the image of God. Now, if you're familiar with the New Testament, you know that some of Jesus' biggest conflicts came around this whole issue of the, the rhythm of the week and the seventh day and the Sabbath. Jesus' approach to it was different than the reigning Jewish interpretation of that day. Sometimes people say that the Jews had changed the day to a bunch of rules and Jesus wasn't about rules, but that's really playing into our own American hatred of rules. It's a fairly ethnocentric reading. Jesus wasn't destroying the Sabbath. We see this in the snippet of our gospel from Mark chapter 2 that that I read earlier. Jesus was not objecting to honoring the Sabbath. His objection was to the way they had misconstrued the Sabbath. In fact, Jesus insisted in Mark chapter 2 at the end of the reading I did, he insisted the Sabbath is a gift. It's a gift for humans. The Sabbath was made for humans. It was something that God delighted in and he gives it to humans. Now, if you're familiar with the Christian scene, there are still huge debates about this issue. None of which I'm going to get into this morning. The thing we're focused on this morning is we're looking at the Sabbath from an angle. The angle we're looking at it from is our own busyness. How does the Sabbath hold wisdom to us for our harried, hurried, over-busy lives? And what I've already said, and and I'll be saying again next week, is that our great need is to embrace rhythm. Now, with that being said, what I'm going to do for the rest of the message is I'm going to walk through three very practical ways that you can embrace a week as seven days that climaxes not on Friday as the Muslims do, not on Saturday as the Jews do, but on Sunday as Christians do. See, even those cultures that have embraced a seven-day week, they, they practice its rhythm in different ways, and the rhythm we embrace has profound theological implications. So what does it mean for Christians to embrace a Christian week? First of all, remember what we saw in Genesis 2 verses 1 to 3. The first way to embrace the week is to cease on Sunday. To cease on Sunday. Now look, just a real quick aside. In the Old Testament, Saturday was a Sabbath. It was fast. It was hard. It was You could not compromise it. God hurt Israel when Israel broke the Sabbath. At one point, God exiles Israel from the land. When they come back in the New Testament, the reason they have so many laws about the Sabbath is because the last time they broke the Sabbath rules, God kicked them out of the land. 
So they come back into the land. They say, that's one mistake we're not going to make again. If this is against the law, let's not do this. It was out of pure hearts. Now, Jesus came along, and this thing that gave Jews their identity, when he rose from the dead, his resurrection was so powerful, it shifted a core identity issue for the people of God, and it moved this thing from Saturday to Sunday. Only the power of the resurrection could have convinced those first Jewish Christians to change what they did on Saturday. So for us, there's a huge issue going on there. We'll not go into it now. For us, it shifts to Sunday. And the first thing we learn when we look at the whole Christian witness, the Old and New Testament, is that when it comes to the Lord's Day, when it comes to Sunday, we cease. We cease our work. At the heart of Sabbath keeping is that for a whole day, for a whole 24-hour period, for one-seventh of your time, for one day out of sevens, out of seven, you cease producing. Now this is, in other words, Sabbath, the Sabbath wisdom is not something you nibble at in bits and pieces. You don't say, oh, I'm going to take a few moments of Sabbath time. No. Sabbath is a day. It's not something that you slot into the convenience of your life. It's something that shatters the conveniences of your life. It intrudes on you. It comes back every week like waves of the ocean. You can't escape it. It's here now. For an entire day, you cease work. Now, I've been, I was raised to practice this. Um... The first time I called Janelle and asked her out for a date, it was on a Sunday. And I called her up. I was 18. I said, would you like to go out? And I said, hi, what are you doing? And she said, I'm washing my car. And now she claims my response was, washing your car? Now, I I don't remember that, but I was raised where we just didn't do that. We didn't do any of the labors of life on Sunday. And I remember thinking, why are you doing that? What, What does that mean? I don't even understand. So what, and and lots of different families have different rules about what constitutes work. And that's really the rub. What does it mean to cease work? I mean, where do we draw the line? What is work and what is not work? And unless you belong to a very strict group where the answers are fixed and explicit, it's going to require discernment. And we're not going to become one of those groups that makes laws and rules about what is and what isn't. One of the classic answers to what is work is this. This, is, this goes way back in our tradition. It's whatever changes the natural world. Whatever brings change to the material world. All week long we wrestle with the created world. Tilling and hammering and carrying and burning and organizing and administrating. But on Sunday we let it be. We stop messing with the world. We stop messing with with the society. We stop messing with creation. We just stop and let it be what it is. We celebrate what is and we live in what is and we do this with peace and gratitude. And you know what this does? It reminds us that it is not our effort alone that grows grain and forges steel and feeds our family and fights injustice and teaches our students. It's not us alone carrying that burden. We stop because it doesn't depend on us. Now, over the years of practicing this, I've learned that work comes in many varied forms and 
can take on many guises. And each of you must determine in conversations with others and in prayer and in reading Scripture, every one of us must determine what exactly it is that we need to relinquish. Now, for me, the way I think about it is I cease production. Anything in my life that is producing. So for me, that is things like washing the car and mowing the grass and going shopping. It's all of those ways that I'm making work, that I'm producing. It's hard. It's really hard. An entire 24-hour period where we cease organizing, administrating, figuring things out. One of the biggest challenges that you'll ever face if you endeavor to embrace the rhythm of six days of work and one day where you cease, you know what the biggest challenge you're going to face is? Your own obsessions. Your own preoccupations. It can be so hard to let go of your mental work and your physical work of of trying to figure things out, of housework and work that you bring home from the office. And that's why we heard Joetta read Exodus 16. Think about the lesson there. Less than two months after their their exodus from Egypt, the tribes of Israel had already grown impatient with the life in the wilderness. And they complained about their freedom. A freedom that left them hungry. And they longed for the places and the food of their enslavement. And Moses carried their complaint to God. And God answered them but not in a way that they could have ever wished for. What was God's answer? Manna. The word manna, you know what it means? It means, what is it? (laughs) That's literally what it means. They said, what is it? And Moses said, that's what it is. What is it? (laughs) See, God's answer to their heart was this, this thing that became their teacher each morning. They would wake up fresh manna on the ground. And they could only gather how much? Enough for the day. If they didn't, what would be in it the next morning? Did you catch this? Maggots. It was in the nature of this food to rot if it was hoarded. There was no forgetting that it was a gift. Every night, the people had to go to bed and trust what would be there the next day. Enough for them to eat. And if you didn't trust, what would you do? You'd get a little extra. You'd stay up into the night. You'd transgress the boundaries and the rhythms that God had given you. And at the end of each week, you not only had to trust there was enough for that day, but that there wouldn't be any tomorrow, but today's amount, you got double, that it wouldn't rot this time. Now, on any other day it would rot, but this time it won't rot, and it'll be enough for tomorrow. Man! God was expecting an enormous amount of trust. And he was using manna. See, the real issue behind their complaint was that they didn't trust God. So he said, I'm going to solve the real issue by answering what you think the issue is in this unique way. Do you see how practicing the Sabbath, ceasing from our work is an act of trust? It's a decision to release the world and our fate, and our reputation, and all of the needs that are clamoring for our attention. It's a decision to say, it's God's job. 
I don't really carry as much weight in my world as my schedule cons my heart into believing. It's a decision to release all of the needs around you into the hands of God. See, this is why I'm saying our over-busyness is really a spiritual illness. You see, our over-busyness for many of us is really masking our lack of trust in God. When we stop from our work, we are exhibiting a fundamental trust and faith in the goodness of God. Sabbath ceasing is Sabbath trusting. It's a call to visibly demonstrate in our daily living that we know We are not God and that we are upheld by the grace of God. It's not the strength of our hands. It's the goodness of God that makes life possible. You see, at the end of the day, to cease for 24 hours is to give up control. We've got to learn to live by the generosity of the manna that's falling around us and to see that deep down, Our real problem is that we think all of life is secured by our own striving. We prefer to think that we live through the might and control of our own exertion. See, for a day to stop is a radical decision to depend on God. (coughs) It's you saying, I am not going to take charge of the outcome. It's you saying that you will do your part. Of course you will. But your part is only your part. Do you see how Sabbath keeping is, is us resisting our culture's emphasis on your identity coming through your accomplishments? So that's the first way we embrace the rhythm. We just stop. Friday, I left my office. There were a thousand things I couldn't get done this week. There are things that our church need, do, need to have done. But Friday I left my office. I, I left those things there. Saturday was a day of work for me, for my family, around the house. And so you know what I had to do sat Friday afternoon leaving the office? I had to stop and pray and say, God, here's what I did. Here's what I didn't do. It's yours. I can't do the rest of it. And I'm going home. Because I've got work there to do on Saturday. And I'm not going to do work on Sunday. It was, I, I had to just say, God, I trust you. Help me to get home and to, and to just leave it with you. That's the first way. We receive the gift of a week. The second way, go back to Genesis chapter 2, verse 1. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done. Now think about Adam and Eve. When were they made? Late in the sixth day. They were given a huge job. Multiply, fill the earth, have dominion over it, draw out of this earth all of its potential. They go to bed, can't wait. They wake up the next day and God says, oh no, not today. This is the seventh day. What what are are you trying to do? Can you imagine? I mean, they were chomping at the bit. And God was like, oh, no, 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 no. We don't start with work. We start with rest. That's where this thing starts. Our work comes out of our rest. Our our work comes out of our resting. 
That's huge. Most of us think we work ourselves until we pass out to deserve our rest. But God says, no. You rest to be ready for your work. Rest comes first. And we see in Genesis chapter 2 that this rest is a whole rest. I mean, there's a lot more going on here than taking a nap. But let's start there. There... Sunday is about physical rest. The Sabbath is about physical rest. We need to rest. We've got six days of work we got to do. We've got to rest. We need rest from the anxiety and the physical strain. We need to walk away regularly from our work. But it's not just physical rest. Genesis 2, is also, chapter 2, verses 1 to 3, also shows us an image of spiritual rest. See, Sabbath resting is about more than physically stopping. It's about the inner rest of your soul. Spiritual rest. That's to be held in the loving embrace of the Father. Just to be held. You need to make room for this. At the heart of Sabbath resting is, the, is finding opportunities to know the presence of God. This is a big part of what we're doing right through this whole service, right? Uh, Janelle and I made a practice a long time ago of, of taking off our watches on Sunday and getting off of clock time and just learning in worship to rest, right? And to think this is about just sitting with God and singing songs of praise and hearing Scripture read and hearing Scripture taught. You may have noticed that our churches. Very intentional about not having lots of programs. One of the problems with being church is that you start trying to do all the good things that can be done, and pretty soon Sunday becomes far more than, far less than a day of rest. If the way you're practicing Christianity precludes physical rest from Sunday, you're practicing it wrong. Now, there is work to be done on Sunday. The priests have always had work to do. There's always things to do. But if you, you've got to find a way to do them in this restful way. Uh, another type of rest we see, not only physical and spiritual, but emotional rest. Too often we are too emotionally drained to cope with our lives. Now look, the way this plays out with Janelle and I is Janelle's an introvert and I'm an extrovert. So people... Recharge my batteries and people drain Janelle. So we have to be careful on Sundays how much time we're spending with others and how much time we're spending alone. If not, we could, I could have a great Sunday. Man, wasn't that wonderful? I'm so recharged. I was just hanging out with people all day long. And Janelle's like, I'm exhausted. <laughs> so recently we had a family meeting. I, Janelle and I had a meeting. <laughs> and we discovered we were spending too much time with people on Sundays. And so we, we, we've changed some of our rhythm on Sunday so that we can get this balance in different seasons in your life, right? You have different needs and different things going on. You might enter into a season in life where you don't hang around long after the service because you really need to pull back for a time. One more thing, though, about emotional rest. It's not just about introvert, extrovert. It's also about worry and anxiety. Emotional rest includes resting from the things that worry you. You must try not to think of those things on Sunday. Now, if you've ever tried not to think of something, you know the problem with that, right? Don't look at it. Don't think about it. It just keeps coming to you. So I would say, don't just try not to worry about the things that worry you. Avoid any of the activities that remind you of those things. 
So if finances are a real stress in your life, don't do bills on Sunday. I mean, that's a real practical way, right? Don't do your tax return on Sunday. Don't make a list of all the things you've got to do in the coming week on Sunday. Now, Janelle and I, this is another way that we're practicing this. Janelle, she she needs before the week to prepare for the week, her schedule and grocery list and all that stuff. So lately, she's begun to wait until the sun goes down because, right, the day begins in the evening. So it's a way of setting boundaries and just saying, I'm going to do that in sunset on Sunday afternoon. One wise woman that I've read about recently said she deliberately refrains from thinking about all the people who make her angry (laughs) on Sundays. Uh, A fourth type of rest is intellectual rest. You need to rest your brain. You need to stop your intellectual labors. Now, I've got to be very strict about this. I love the world of ideas. I love thinking about things. So there are, there are books that I don't read and conversations I don't have on Sunday because they're just going to put me into the, my intellectual labors. Now, so to receive the week, we embrace the Sabbath. We take a whole 24 hours to cease. And by the way, let me say, students, I would strongly encourage you, don't do homework on Sundays. Discipline yourself to put your schoolwork into six days. And most of the time, teenagers, it's laziness that puts it on Sunday. Most of the time, not all of the time. But I would strongly encourage you to develop the manna habit. Say, it's just not for this day. Now, and if there's something to do, I guess I would, if I had to, I would try my hardest to push it off until after the sun goes down. Students, you've got to learn to do this. Parents, you can help them. Third thing, cease, rest, Save the fun one for last. Anybody know? Feast. In the Bible, the Sabbath is about more. See, a lot of us have turned the Sabbath into time off. But I hope what you've seen is Sabbath is not time off. It's time aside. The Sabbath is the Lord's day. It's not your day. See what our culture has done? It's turned the Sunday into our day to do all the things we love to do. That's a sacrilege for a Christian. Sunday's not your day. It's the Lord's day. And the Lord has said, cease on this day, rest on this day. But you know what he's also said? Feast on this day. That's what we see in Genesis 2. The image is not of God taking a nap. It's of God resting in his work and delighting in all that he had done. We need to stop and enjoy. To enjoy the fruits of our labor. The heart of the Sabbath is joy. In Proverbs 8. Proverbs 8 is my favorite account of creation. And in Proverbs 8, Jesus is personified as wisdom, as a little child, at the side of the Father. Listen to what he says in Proverbs 8, verse 30. I was beside him, this is Jesus talking about the Father, like a master workman, and I was daily his delight, rejoicing before him always, rejoicing in his his inhabited world, and delighting in the children of man. Now, the word rejoice here means laughter or another translation, play. I was playing in front of the father and his creation. One of my favorite philosophers is Calvin Surfield. Here's his translation of Proverbs 8, verse 30 and 31. I was enjoying myself day after day, playing around all the time in front of the father's face, playing through the hemispheres of his earth, having fun with all of mankind. 
Here's an image of God creating and God enjoying his creation. He's having fun. A friend of mine likes to say, Jesus ate his way through the Gospels. He was no gloomy bystander. Every page almost, you turn to him, he's at some different party. Look, the Lord of creation is the Lord of the banquet. That's who he is. He's no gloomy bystander. I like the way John Ortberg, he's a pastor in California. Here's how he lays it out. One day a week, eat the food you love to eat. Listen to the music that moves your soul. Play a sport that stretches and challenges you. Read books that refresh your spirit. For me, I don't read Dostoevsky on Sunday. (laughs) Wear clothes that make you happy. Now think about the theological move a lot of you have done already on that issue. You, you wear clothes at work that aren't your favorite clothes. And a lot of you dress in your favorite clothes on Sunday. This is good theological reason for that. It's a way of enjoying creation. Make a list of your favorite things and indulge in them. And as you do these things, give thanks to God for His wonderful goodness. Reflect on what gracious of what a gracious God he is to have thought of these gifts. I mean, have you ever thought the same God that invented chocolate invented taste buds? Isn't that great? Take time to experience and savor joy and then direct your heart toward God, the giver of every good gift. Imagine with me, just a moment. Picture this. Aaron Cook sitting on his porch on a Sunday afternoon drinking coffee with, an, with that air of leisured satisfaction. It doesn't depend on me. God is in control. And dang it, this is good coffee. <laughs> That's the Sabbath. That's Sabbath joy. So there you have it. Three simple actions for 24 hours. Cease, rest, and feast. Now, in order to wrap all this up and to sweeten the pot, I'm going to finish the message with three benefits that I've noticed in my life from receiving the gift of the week. For the first, I'm going to use an interest, a quote from a very interesting woman. She's an anarchist, Christian mystic. Her name is Simone Weil. If you know of her, W-E-I-L is the way you spell the last name. Anyway, for the second, I'm going to use a quote from Herman Melville. And for the third one, I've just cut out all the middlemen, and I'm going to use a quote from the Bible, okay? So three things. Number one, Simone Weil. Like I said, she was a French anarchist, socialist, pacifist, resistance fighter. It's a really weird combination of things. She was a philosopher and a Christian mystic, all rolled up into one, who died at like 27, emaciated. She's an amazing woman. She's got this really fascinating essay on education. And in this essay, she puts her finger on a very important reality when it comes to the Sabbath. She writes this. She says, we do not obtain the most precious gifts by going in search of them. We wait for them. That the most precious gifts in life, we don't go and get, we receive in waiting. She goes on to say, Man cannot discover these gifts by his own power. And if he sets out to seek for them, he will find in their place counterfeits of which he is unable to know he's dealing with counterfeits. 
Now, there's a lot there. I'm not going to unpack it all. But one of the things that I can tell you about the Sabbath and why it is so important to develop the good habit of Sabbath keeping is because if you do it well, if you learn to quiet yourself, you will become available to receive the best gifts in life. And you will receive the genuine gifts rather than the counterfeits. And when this happens, you will be transformed into people of humility and awe and delight. See, this is, one of the, this is why I keep saying busyness is a spiritual illness. Because it, it, it precludes us from receiving the very best gifts. And what we are getting, we think are the good things, but they're counterfeit. Second reason, um, Herman Melville. There's a scene in Moby Dick. Have any of you read Moby Dick? Or you at least have thought about it before. So, okay. What Moby Dick, this is whaling ship, okay? There's this incredible scene. The ship is roaring across a frothing ocean in pursuit of what? This great white whale, Moby Dick. And, and, and Melville describes the ship. It's just a cacophony of activity. The, saber, the sailors are laboring fiercely. Every muscle taut, all attention and energy is concentrated on the great task. The sea is chaotic. The boat is chaotic. Everything is in turmoil except one man. There is one man who does nothing. He doesn't hold an oar. He doesn't perspire. He doesn't shout. He's languid. He's, He's producing nothing. He's just sitting there. This man is the harpooner. And then Melville writes one of the greatest sentences I've ever read in English literature. To ensure the greatest efficiency in the dart, the harpooners of the world must stand to their feet from idleness, not from toil. The 19th century writer Oscar Wilde, he wrote, Action is always easy. To do nothing is the most difficult task in the world. Look, there are things in life that you're going to have to rise to that you cannot rise up to the occasion out of action. So God created Adam and Eve on the sixth day and then he said rest because what I've called you to, you must rise to out of idleness. Do you see how our culture is so broken? Third, listen to Psalm 46, verse 10. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in all the earth. Do you know how to know that about God? Do you feel your life overwhelmed with worry and anxiety? Do you know how to know deep in your heart, God is is God, he will be exalted. This thing is ending in a good place. All is going to be well. Do you, you look, do you know how to get that knowledge from your head to your heart? Do you know how to really know that? To know deep in your bones, so deeply that you walk through your days with a spirit of calmness. This idea that God will prevail 
That his justice and his truth and his beauty and his compassion and his mercy and his grace will be the last word and the forever word. Do you know how to feel that in your bones when everything around you is crazy? Only through stillness can that knowledge move from your head to your soul. Until we enter quietness, the world lays hold on us. But when we enter into the stillness, when we stop making demands on the world and on God, it becomes enough that God is God. And we learn in the stillness of the Sabbath that we have a soul. That God is here and that this is my father's world and it's on his shoulders, not mine. And this knowledge of God, this deep soul heart knowledge of God, as you look, how long did God think Israel needed manna to learn the lesson? 40 years. Did you catch that at the end of the passage? They needed a physical habit. That happened day in and day out for 40 years. In order for that habit to shape the disposition of their heart. So that they became people who trusted. Look, one Sabbath is not going to do Jack Diddley for you. It's a lifetime of practicing these habits we talked about last week and this week and next week. That we can shape the dispositions of our heart. So that we are people who walk with calmness of spirit. So that this knowledge of God slowly and surely and progressively as days go by and weeks go by. You know what happens? This knowledge of God replaces the rabid busyness and self-importance that drives our culture. And it comes to possess us. So much is at stake. I commend to you. The Sabbath. Let's pray.